This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the centenary year of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Each episode on the podcast, we look at some aspect of Bradbury's life and work and interview someone who is inspired by Ray. Welcome back to Bradbury 100. Before we properly begin today, I just want to remind you that I also have a YouTube channel, Bradbury 101, in which I have slowly but surely been working my way through each of Ray's books and giving them an audio-visual review. So if you need more of a Bradbury fix, please join me over there on YouTube. Now today, I have a very special guest who can give us a very different perspective on Ray Bradbury. His name is Pavel Gubarev, and he has been flying the Bradbury flag for many years in Russia through his website, raybradbury.ru. Now, I've known Pavel for years, but we've only ever talked via email or message boards or Facebook until today when I'll be speaking to him for the first time via Zoom. You probably know that Ray Bradbury is popular across the world. In the Centre for Ray Bradbury's Studies in Indiana, where they keep a fairly complete set of Bradbury's books, they have copies of his works in dozens of languages, including Russian. In the days of the Soviet Union, Bradbury, like many Western writers, found that his works were being reproduced in Russian without a penny being paid to him. Up until 1973, Soviet copyright law provided a freedom to translate, and so books from outside of the Soviet Union were translated without any royalties being paid. And this created an odd situation for someone like Bradbury, On the one hand, he became one of the Soviet Union's most popular and best-known American writers. But on the other hand, he wasn't being paid. Over time, this changed a little, but it wasn't until the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 1990s that Russia began following the same copyright practices as most of the rest of the world. In 2012, Mikhail Yossel, wrote an article for The New Yorker in which he described Bradbury's Russian popularity. First of all, he puts Bradbury in with Isaac Asimov, Ernest Hemingway and J.D. Salinger as the four most popular American authors in the USSR. He then goes on to characterise Bradbury's role among Russian readers. Uh, Russian science fiction, according to Yossel, was largely an ideology-intensive literary genre whose ultimate overriding agenda lay in claiming the future for a unified, beautifully homogenised, meaningfully sterile, stateless and classless world, patterned in its development, supposedly, on the Soviet model of society. Now, Bradbury, as the American outsider, presented dystopian visions through his books uh, Fahrenheit 451, The Martian Chronicles, 
and to a lesser extent, The Illustrated Man. Yossel says these books presented different versions of the same cautionary tale with regards to the dire perils awaiting humankind in the unfortunate event that the future, by some fluke of history, ended up belonging to the rapacious, soulless and increasingly fascist world of unbridled capitalism. According to Mikhail Eosel, most every Soviet teenager loved Bradbury for his sincerity and his innocence. They joined fan clubs, they made dandelion wine. Ray's stories also ended up being adapted into Russian-language films and TV series. There's a Russian version of Dandelion Wine, which looks fantastic, but I haven't been able to find an English subtitled version, so I have no idea what the characters are saying. There's a Russian Martian Chronicles, which looks quite the most surreal Bradbury adaptation of all. And there are short animated films, one of which, There Will Come Soft Rains, is a powerful but strange adaptation. I reviewed it for my website some years ago. It shows some changes from Bradbury's story, which you may recall is the one about an automated house which carries on functioning after a nuclear war has killed everyone. It's inspired by a Sarah Teasdale poem. Where Bradbury has regiments of robot mice and other mechanical servants in his story, the house in the animated film has one dominant servant, a weird sort of robot head. Where Bradbury's story has the house slowly dying, merely a delayed victim of the atomic war, the film has the house self-destruct. The film is much colder and much more aloof than Bradbury's story, but a striking addition that the film makes is a morning prayer sequence. In a way, this seems an unlikely element from a Soviet film, but it carefully establishes that the story is set in the US. Where Bradbury focuses primarily on the daily ritual of breakfast, going to work, going to school, the film builds in the ritual of prayer and standing for the national anthem. Now, this film dates from the early 1980s. There is here a sense of Cold War satire very different from what we find in Bradbury's rather more innocent tale. The lasting original image from this short film is of the futility of a bird trying to escape through a window which is nothing more than a fantasy image. And this is where the film remains a bleak vision. Despite the promise of Teasdale's poem, there seems little hope that this world in the film could recover. It's a strange little film, but quite inventive. You can usually find it on YouTube, so I recommend you seek it out. Now, today's guest was a child during the last years of the Soviet Union, and he has lived most of his life in Russia and other former Soviet countries. We talk about Bradbury, of course, websites, writing, and lots more. Now, I do have to apologise for the sound quality. 
The conversation you're about to hear was recorded over Zoom, as I usually do, but it's not the clearest of recordings on this occasion. But I hope you'll find it interesting enough that you will keep listening. Joining me today is Pavel Gubarev. Pavel is a software developer and a writer, and he created the Russian Ray Bradbury website. Pavel, welcome to Bradbury 100. It's an honor to be here. Tell me how you first discovered Ray Bradbury. I grew up in a house where, well, there were books. Among many other books, there was a book uh, with a green cover. It had Martian Chronicles in it and some assorted stories. Not a Russian name, of course. <laughs> and uh, usually Soviet editions, they were uh, very well done uh, with a lot of uh, you know, meticulous details. And often there were some prefaces written by a translator or just some by some knowledgeable person. And there was maybe a short biography of Ray Bradbury and some comment on, on his uh, books and everything. That's good to know. I, I didn't know that they were presented to you with that kind of context so that you, as a reader, you knew that this was um, an American writer. You mentioned to me that Bradbury was very well known in Russia as well, but it was only in the 1990s that Bradbury's horror stories were uh, kind of introduced to Russian readers. How did that affect people's understanding of Bradbury? Uh, yeah, I remember that. That was weird because uh, I mentioned the uh, prefaces that sometimes people had to somehow connect the novel or the stories to uh, some ideology. So they uh, said that, well, Ray Bradbury criticizes capitalist life and they uh, said that he was a humanist, a humanitarian writer. And they call him good old Uncle Ray. And we have this image of a man who rides the bicycles because he dislikes the cars. Then, bam, we read the skeleton, the jar and everything. What's this? <laughs> How? Why? Why or not he, he would write? That's weird. It was kind of, yes, really weird. <laughs> So how was it that those early stories were not known to Russian readers? Was it simply that the October country had not been translated into Russian? Yeah, some of the books were translated and very well and published. We had Fahrenheit 451, Martian Chronicles, of course, a lot of stories. And uh, yeah, that's it. But he was hugely popular. Did you ever see any of the Russian language films? There was one of Dandelion Wine. And I think some of the other stories were adapted as well. Have you ever seen those? Uh, yeah, there was Dandelion Wine, uh, there was Martian Chronicles, and uh, there were a couple of, at least two cartoons, but uh, they were not very popular. It's very difficult for me to judge them. I've seen them, but of course I don't speak Russian, but I'd love one day to see a subtitled version of those so that I can understand what's going on, because they look like very free translations of the stories. Dandelion Wine was uh, pretty close and uh, there were some very uh, famous actors in it. But for some reason, something is not quite there. <laughs> I don't know why. That's true of so many yeah. adaptations of Bradbury, though. It's 
got the story, but there's something missing at the heart of the yeah, adaptation. Totally agree. Now, you created a Bradbury website, which I always thought was a, a really attractive website and had some fantastic content, most of it in Russian, of course, so I couldn't mm. understand it. By using Google Translate, I was always able to get a, a strong impression of what you were trying to do with the website. T tell us something about how that website came into existence. So I was very young. I got my first job in the university they taught me to make websites. It was year 2000. The Russian internet was very, very small. And there was like maybe 10 literary websites. And each new website was the news. So I, I just wanted to make a website because I could. <laughs> and all, all the people, well, uh, everybody who could, they made their home pages about themselves. But I decided that, uh, well, I love Ray Bradbury. So let's make a website uh, dedicated to Ray Bradbury. So I made it. I, I think I got a comment on the copyright. You see, at that moment, it was a very good luck to find another short story by Ray Bradbury in Russia the, those days, because uh, we were in transition of between the political systems and economical systems. All the Soviet publishing system was gone, and the new publishing houses, they just appeared. There was like a chaos. I was hunting down the uh, Bradbury book. So I, do you have one? Do you have one? Do you have one? And if somebody takes out of the cell a dusty book and I discover a story I haven't read yet, it was a very good day for me. <laughs> and I was rewarded. I, I remember the first time I found somewhere and read uh, No Particular Night and Morning. It, it was profound. When I built the website, I naturally started to share all those texts because, well, I spent so much time and so much pain to find them I wanted to share. And I had no idea I violated the law. It just haven't crossed my mind. It, there was no such word as copyright. <laughs> well, the website became bigger and bigger. There was a lot of people uh, coming to the message board. It was a huge part of my life to finish this thing. Well, uh, uh, I've got an email from some American publishing house. They asked me politely to remove the text, or they sue me. <laughs> so I removed the text. Uh, then I got a message from the biggest publishing house in Russia. Now they own the exclusive rights on all the Ray Bradbury works in Russia. So they messaged me and asked politely to remove the text in, the, in Russian. So I made a call. I reached the head of the digital distribution department and I asked them, can I please leave the short stories online? And he said, yes. So it's allowed. A very Russian kind of situation. I'm thinking about the, the mechanical side of how you made that website. When you had all of the texts on there, all of the stories and the books, how did you get them? Did you scan all of the books and use optical character recognition to turn it into text? Uh, yeah, sometimes that was uh, the only way. Uh, also, there were some other people who helped me, who um, made the scans and put them online, and I had just had to convert. There was a lot of uh, trouble with converting the, you know, the end of lines and everything. Out of the blue, some guy appeared. He was a Russian living in the United States. I don't know much about him, uh, but he sent me a huge package of English books. He said, I want you to have them. <laughs> there was a message board. A lot of people came. And it was like, do you hear the, those voices too? 
are you insane as me? And we were like, you know, 17 and insane. Yes, these two go together. So we have this uh, company of uh, young people from all over the Russia and uh, Ukraine, a guy from Poland, etc., etc. We had offline gatherings and... Uh, yeah, it was a huge part of uh, my life, and that's how I met my wife. But then we grew up, uh, so the message board does not exist uh, no more. But yeah, those were the days. Absolutely. <laughs> Around the same time that you created your website, I was trying to create mine, but I'm not a software developer, so I just used very simple tools. And I've never really gone back to my website and updated it. So it, mine looks as if it was written in the year 2000 and hasn't improved uh, over time. But your website always looked good. Are you a designer as well, and you, like a graphic designer? Oh, thank you very much. Uh, well, no, I just made it. By the way, your website is very uh, useful. I use it all the time to check the short story finders. A bit later on, you made another website, which I think now we can only access through the Internet Archive, which was called Immersion. As I remember, that was mostly English language content, which was contributed by mostly American readers of Bradbury. How did that one come about? I think I just wanted to make an international version of the website. We had like 30 introductions to 30 different stories. And each of the introductions had the Russian, Polish and the English version. I contacted Nart Kodel, sadly he's not with us anymore, and asked him to make his version of introductions. I also had a friend, an elder friend from Poland, and I asked him to translate my introductions from Russian to Polish. And for some reason, <laughs> I switched this website off. I don't remember why. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's still preserved on the Internet Archive. Yeah, but, but, but it looks dated these days because the monitors became bigger, the pictures got smaller. and <laughs> it's, it's good that there's something still there. Tell me something about Bradbury's stories and, and what they mean to you? Like, which are your favourite stories? Oh, this is a very complicated question, you know. Um, well, when I first read them, I had this impression, like, he's trying to shake me, like, he's attacking my worldview and successfully. It's like when you read something and then in yourself, in your soul, in your psyche, you find something you never realised there is. Do I make any sense? Some of the stories I mentioned, no particular night or morning or blue bottle. It was like I learned something about myself, about the other people through his stories. And still they shake me. They are phenomenal. I Sometimes I read the book on psychology, neuropsychology, Daniel Kahneman maybe. And uh, I some find the similarities between what he said in Kaleidoscope and uh, these works of, in, of psychology. And it's beautiful. I don't understand the latest stuff. Uh, the stories became weird. I spoke to my friend, uh, a writer, and he likes them very much. I said, maybe when I'll be your age, 60, 70, maybe I'll, then I'll understand him. And he said, yeah, yeah, probably. But I know that uh, you too don't appreciate the latest stuff. No, not, not so much. I think the later stories, they're often just dialogue. There's none of the descriptive passages that Bradbury used to do in his earlier writing. And if you look through, um, I don't know if you know that, do you know the two big collections? There's one called The Stories of Ray Bradbury, and there's one called Bradbury Stories. If you browse through that book, you'll find there's a lot of stories in there which start with somebody waking up. It seems to be a very common 
thing. And the strange thing is, Bradbury used to say that he would get his best ideas first thing in the morning. So he would wake up and then he would go and write down whatever it was. So I think he, he basically it got his ideas from dreams. And so a lot of these stories start with people waking up. And I just don't find them interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he became repetitive. Like there is a plot when somebody goes into the past to save his favorite writer. Okay, we all know these one stories, uh, one story, very famous one. But then he wrote another one, and another one, and another one. So it's um, might be forever and the earth. Yeah, about yeah. Thomas Wolfe, and then there's one about F. Scott Fitzgerald, and he wrote several stories about Laurel and Hardy. Um, yeah. So yeah, it got a bit repetitive in those later stories. So I'm I'm not a big fan of them, and I'm so glad that he wrote all the really good stuff in his early career, because that's the stuff that we remember. <laughs> Although in later collections there are some brilliant stories, like The Hopscotch and House Divided, these are very good too, I think. And I, of the later stories, I really think The Toynbee Convector is one of his best. And there's one, I think, A Touch of Petulance is quite good as well, and that's a fairly late career story. So there were some... There were some good ones, but uh, too too many average ones, I think. Do you have lots of English language Bradbury books? You just showed me one volume. Do you have many others? Yeah, I have uh, maybe ten of them. I have two books with uh, his uh, signature. And do you find there's much difference between the English and the Russian translations? Yeah, as I said, uh, those uh, Soviet-era translations were done by the best professionals, but sometimes there is some incompatibility between the languages, and I think they had a very rough time translating this. I can give you a couple of examples. For instance, there's a story about the end of the world. It's about an old Mexican man, I think, working somewhere at the gas station, and there is a atomic explosion and everything and the thing is that in russian we don't say the end of the world in russian we say another word uh, which uh, means uh, world and light so you cannot just uh, translate the last sentence word by word well i can't explain all the mechanics but the, the translator she had to change slightly the last sentence and you know in the in Bradbury stories the last sentence is like a gunshot it makes all the effect and if you make something slightly different, you ju it just doesn't work like that. It just uh, the meaning is gone. Also, recently I read some story, and I noticed that three words in a row start with the same letter. It was about a schoolboy beating up the schoolboy. There was something like he bit me, plummeted me, something like b b b b. So obviously, Bradbury intended to make this beat something like, um, there's a word for it, uh, alliteration. In Russian translation, I opened it and I saw there were just three words, three synonyms, and they don't sound like uh, beating me. It looks like a writer couldn't find one good word and he went with three different words that mean the same and it's a sign of bad writing. So yeah, something is lost in translation. I really feel for translators, though, because they have to do so many things simultaneously. They have to capture the, the narrative 
but they also need to capture the feeling. And as you say, they, they need the poetry that comes from the way the words form in your mouth as you're, as you're saying the words. So it's an impossible job translating. I've read a few books that have been translated into English from other languages. And quite often you can feel that there has been translation because there's something about the English that isn't quite right because it's still got something of the source language attached to it. I don't know if you know the Polish science fiction writer Stanislaw Lem, um, the author sure. of Solaris. Yeah, His book Solaris, for many years, the only version that you could get in English had been translated from French. So wow. it, it wasn't even a direct translation. It was a second-hand translation. It always felt wrong, just reading the book, that you always feel there's something strange about the English that's there. And there, there, recently there's been a new translation directly from Polish into English, and it's a much better book. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I really feel sorry for translators and their impossible job. <laughs> Can you tell me something about your own writing? Because I, I gather that you're a science fiction writer. <laughs> With pleasure. Yeah, I think I imitate Bradbury a lot. <laughs> I write mostly short stories. I, I got uh, 30 of them and uh, around 10 of them published in uh, different anthologies. I just switched to novels because people demand novels and I wrote two not published yet. My favorite topic is psychology and psychiatry and about uh, disorders like depression and uh, anxiety. Well, what, what happens in the future? Maybe there's, there'll be a new medicine. Maybe we'll teach robots to help us in psychotherapy. And what happens if such robot runs away? And what if we connect a computer to a brain and maybe it will help us with depression and maybe we'll get things worse? My biggest success is that uh, there was an international cyberpunk short story contest. They invited Bruce Sterling, American author, to judge the contest. And he picked uh, the winners. And uh, I got the first place for some reason. Well, for some reason. The reason being, <laughs> it was a very good story, of course. Uh, yeah, well, the weird thing is that I wrote this story five years before the contest. And in five years, it became obsolete. It wasn't science fiction anymore. It was about the contactless payment system. Oh, that's fantastic. <sighs> Congratulations on that win. That's really good. Thank you. I, I have a standard question that I always ask when I'm interviewing people for the podcast, and that's if you were marooned on a desert island and you could only have one Bradbury item with you, what would you like to have? I think I'll go with uh, um, the illustrated van. And any particular reason? Well, uh <laughs> they are just good stories, you know. They are a little different. Everything is like a, a silver bullet to a heart. Yeah, yeah. Are, are those because they're mostly science fiction stories? Are they similar to the kind of things that you like to write yourself? Science fiction is just a tool. You use it like a magnifying glass. So sometimes you need this, and sometimes you don't. But it's not what I look for in stories. I know that a lot of people do. They don't care about the writing, the quality of the writing, the, the characters, the imagery. They just look for a clever idea. What I like uh, about Ray Bradbury is that he doesn't care about science. If you take Mr. Azimov, Mr. Clark and uh, Heinlein, 
they are still known, but not that well. As for Bradbury, I know the statistics. In 2019, he was the writer number four in Russia, among all the writers. What he has to do with modern Russia? Well, he has something. You know, still, young people read these stories, these novels, and they uh, feel something about this. That's remarkable. Was that a poll where people voted um, for their favourite writers, or was it some other kind of survey? It wasn't a survey, it was uh, statistics, sales. Wow, I had yeah. no idea. I knew that Bradbury was popular, but when I saw the, him on the fourth place, it's like... <laughs> so who is above Bradbury? Who are the top three? I think uh, there was Stephen King, and there was uh, Daria Dantsova. She's very popular. She writes detective uh, novels. Wow, that's fascinating. Um, is there anything else about Bradbury that you think the English-speaking world should know about Bradbury from the Russian experience? Well, just to sum it up, as I said, uh, Bradbury is very popular in uh, here. Sometimes maybe uh, people feel that he's uh, Russian, <laughs> Russian too, and somehow resonates with everything. And he, all, uh, of course, he had deep influence on us. I'm sorry about uh, Soviet Union not paying him what he deserves. We had no idea that it, it's going on. It was a weird country, totalitarian state. Uh, by the way, it's weird that Fahrenheit 451 criticizing totalitarian state came out around in the 60s, I guess. And somehow nobody spoke about how it criticizes the system. Maybe everybody thought it's about the future or maybe it's about the United States. I believe that the popularity of this book is based not only about satire or criticizing the society, it's about two lonely people, like two nerds who don't watch TV. That's what I saw in it. And when I met all my friends from the message board, we saw that in each other, you know, the loneliness. We are not watching the TV, we, we read books, we can talk about, well, something deep. This loneliness is inside this book and a lot of readers can feel it. And this, I think, what makes Bradbury unforgettable. And he, that's why he stands the test of time. And that's why he crosses the borders, the, the time and everything. That's fantastic. Interestingly, Bradbury himself, in his last decade, insisted that Fahrenheit 451 was about television. He said that it wasn't about censorship it wasn't really about totalitarianism it was about television <laughs> now i never believed that but it's interesting what you said that uh, the appeal of it is that it's about two people who turn away from television and read and that's really getting to the heart of what bradbury thought it was about there are two kinds of predictions in this book about culture First, he said that books and films uh, will become shorter. The digest of digest, digest of digest of digest. Yeah? And that never happened. It's other way around. We have this Game of Thrones and Doctor House and everything very long. But at the same time, he predicted those walls and those interactive TV shows. Although we don't have those TV shows, we have very similar kind of format. The same character appearing day after day in your TV. 
So basically, he predicted Friends, right? The TV show. You're right. But as well as books getting bigger and bigger, like with Game of Thrones, we also have tweets. We have the shortest possible text, 160 characters or whatever it is that a tweet is limited to. So we do also go down to these really tiny texts. Mm, yeah, but this is not literature, right? It's more, more like a message or, or something in between sometimes. But one of the things he makes fun of in Fahrenheit 451 are advertising jingles. I can't remember what the product is, but there's some ad. Toothpaste. Yes, yes, a toothpaste um, ad. And he, he finds himself singing the, the jingle. <laughs> the character sings the jingle as he's travelling around. And obviously those are, are very short bursts of music as well. It's similar to a tweet, I think. Yeah, but, and by the way, I just remembered that many years ago, people from, from St. Petersburg invited me to watch the play. It was a student theatre and they've made Fahrenheit for 451, a play. And a lot of uh, students trying really hard and there were a lot of musical numbers. And I remember a musical number with that jingle. <laughs> Toothpaste denim and some girls dancing. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Thank you, Pavel, for joining me today. I've learned a lot about Ray Bradbury in Russia and in the Soviet Union. So thank you very much for that. Thank you for, uh, for the invitation. Well, it was very nice to talk to you. My thanks again to Pavel Gubarev. In the show notes on my website, bradburymedia.co.uk, I'll put links to Pavel's Russian Bradbury site and to the archived copy of the Ray Bradbury Immersion website, which we discussed in the interview. I'll also put links to the Mikhail Eosel New Yorker article and the various Russian-language films I mentioned earlier. Thanks for listening, and please join me again soon for another Bradbury 100. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe using your podcast app. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, SoundCloud and all good podcast places. And you can find us on YouTube and Facebook too. For more information, head to bradburymedia.co.uk. Thank you.